0: I mean, I hear you saying you want the book recommendations, and yet I keep thinking about how that TBR might crush you.
1: It's okay, I'm strong. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey readers, I'm Anne Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 251. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader, what should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Want a confidence boost? Take coloring your hair at home to the next level with Madison Reed. Get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door starting at $22. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And look as if you just came from the salon without the time or expense. At Madison Reed, master colorists blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones to create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. What Should I Read Next listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code REED. Use the code READ, R-E-A-D, at madison-read, dot com. Readers, fall is here. If stacks of books and freshly sharpened pencils make your heart go pitter-patter, we have a treat for you. Right now, in the Modern Mrs. Darcy Book Club, we are going back to book school. This season, we're learning to read better together, in excessively nerdy and super enjoyable classes that will help you go deeper with your books, brighten your book talk, and have more fun in your reading life. And since book school is part of the modern Mrs. Darcy Book Club, you'll get to pair what you're learning with the books we're reading and the authors we're chatting with this fall. Book school is underway, so join now. Go to what should I read bookschool or click the link in the show notes. That's "What should I read bookschool Today's guest is a self-proclaimed book glutton who reads in between everyday moments at home, at work, and even while she's walking. Gretel Castro is a biostatistician living in Miami, Florida. She emigrated to the United States from Cuba at the age of 14, but her voracious appetite for reading started much earlier. Readers, I'm sure many of you will relate to Gretel's story of falling in love with books as a young reader, as well as her current mixed feelings on big, literary, award-winning novels. Gretel loves backless books, or, as she says, older novels that have simmered for a while. And so today, my goal is to recommend three great books with literary staying power. Let's get to it. Gretel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Anne. If I'm not mistaken, you are our first Cuban reader to appear on What Should I Read Next? I am so glad and I hope I'm not the last one. And we were very excited at What Should I Read Next HQ to get your submission form talking about your history growing up in Cuba and learning to read there as a child. I'll let you tell the story. Would you tell us about your background?
1: Sure. I was born in the 80s in Cuba, and I was coming of age in the 90s. And I don't know if your listeners are too familiar with the history, but the 90s in Cuba were an interesting time. Uh, that was a decade that was called the, the special period. And basically, that meant a lot of rationing, a lot of problems. Um, there was blackouts every other day. I remember that I, I love to read. I didn't stop reading just because the light was out, but I remember I had to read under uh, like a kerosene lamp and it didn't stop my love for reading, even though light was scarce resource at night.
0: (laughs) Gretel, so many readers and listeners of this show relate to the idea of you know, growing up loving books and reading all the books they can get their hands on. And yet it's clear to me that you have a different relationship with books than I do, if only because I've never copied out a book by hand.
1: Oh, yes. <laughs> I I copied two textbooks by hand. Not just books, but
0: textbooks.
1: The thing is that, again, I was growing up and at a time that photocopies were non-existent. Um, I couldn't really buy the book. It was just a book that was lent to me. And I was leaving Cuba. I was a textbook on uh, English literature and English Mm -hmm. grammar. So there were two textbooks, one in English literature and another one in English grammar. And I knew I was coming to the States and I needed to know how to speak English, at least at a kindergarten level. I couldn't take the books with me because they were lent from a friend. And I said, well, let me just copy them. And I copied the grammar textbook and then I copied the literature textbook. I'm going to tell you, it did help me.
0: How long does it take to copy a textbook?
1: Well, it was a grammar textbook. It wasn't skinny.
0: It wasn't just like... <laughs> this is making my hand hurt thinking about it.
1: Yeah, but my
0: heart was so happy. <laughs> I really thought you were going to say it was a statistics textbook. But no, that came later.
1: Oh my God, no. a Statistics textbook I wouldn't copy ever because the creek formulas alone...
0: But I know this morning, I'm in Kentucky and you're in Miami, aren't you? Yep. Tell me about how you got from here to there.
1: So I told you, I was in Cuba when, uh, until I was 19 years old. Uh, my father had left eight years prior to me coming here. Uh, so when I was 19, finally the paperwork um, cleared, and then I came to join my father with my mom.
0: And what do you do there now?
1: In Miami, I'm a statistician. I work at a medical school, and I help uh, medical students do their research rotations um, to graduate. So basically, I help them complete their research projects.
0: And you may be the first biostatistician we've had on the show as well. All kinds of firsts today.
1: I am so glad I am a first Cuban biostatistician. <laughs> I don't think there's
0: many. <laughs> what appeals to you about that field?
1: Well, it's an interesting story. I, Like many kids, I grew up wanting to be a veterinarian. And I almost accomplished that. I, I entered, Before I left Cuba, I did my exams and I could have entered the university to um, study that. But then I left. And I wanted to pursue it when I came here, but things got difficult in terms of like the veterinary school, were going to be away from home, home being Miami. And I didn't want to again leave after I had been without my dad for eight years. So mm-hmm. I made a compromise and, and I said, what can I study that it's something I like in terms of biology related, but I also like math. And that came across and I just followed that pathway and I'm really happy with it. I'm not, I'm not sad I did that.
0: Well, good. I'm glad you found something that suited you, Gretel. What's your reading life like these days? These days I'm a book gluten. I <laughs> eat. <laughs>
1: I read anything. Uh, I read many, many things. I, I don't. Ha- I have a very low threshold for satisfaction. I guess I read when I wake up before the baby wakes up. I, so I, I try to squeeze in a page or two, and then during the day, every time I have some time off, and, you know, at lunchtime or. When I am walking from building to building, I always have a book in my bag, so I I read continuously throughout the day at any moment. Before I go to sleep, I also read at least an hour.
0: Okay, so you said you read when going from building to building. Is that a book in your hand or a book in your ears?
1: In my hand.
0: Okay, tell me about that.
1: That started when I was going to school. I, I had to walk to go to school when I was a kid. It got boring after a point because it was the same path every day. And one day I had a book in my book bag, and I took it out and started reading while I was walking, and it, I didn't get killed. So I said, oh, this <laughs> is safe. <laughs> and then I learned how to walk and, and read at the same time, and, and I do that now.
0: You learned how to do it.
1: Yeah, I guess I started by having the book. Oh, my God, this is going to sound silly, but... No, I, I want to know, because
0: I'm <laughs> thinking there probably are practical tips you could share, but I don't know what they are because I've never learned how to do that. I am <laughs> i wouldn't
1: call them practical tips in case someone just gets killed because of my practical tips. <laughs> we're not going to sue
0: you with the, no no trip and fall cases coming your way.
1: Please don't try this at home.
0: So purely hypothetically, if you were going to give guidance, what might you say?
1: Okay. So I put the book in, in a position that I could look at my feet and the book at the same time. So basically my feet, I could see below the book and then my the book was Lifted a little bit open so I could walk and read at the same time and look at my surroundings. You look like a zombie. (laughs) 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 Maybe you can only get away with that when you're 11, but (laughs) it worked. Now I am cooler about it. Now I just put it uh, to the side and then I'm I'm looking towards my side and the territory in front of me is clear.
0: Okay, Gretel, I didn't know we were going to talk about this today, but I'm glad we did. I think what it speaks to is the priority of reading in your life. And I admire that. I made it a
1: priority. I loved books since I was a kid, and lo- books love me back. <laughs> I remember that my dad gave me books when I was a kid, and I used to—I just remember right now the feeling I had when I read the pages, and it was like being hugged by him at the same time. I, I always cherish that. Oh, that
0: sounds so special.
1: My dad was a special person.
0: Now, Gretel, I was excited about one of the topics you said you wanted to discuss today. I'm referring to Gretel's submission form at what should I read next podcast.com slash guest. And that was about the intriguing and often controversial topic of literary prizes and awards. Mm-hmm. Take it away.
1: So, when I wrote to you, I had just finished a book that. Had been in like shortlisted for many prizes, Um, and and I finished the book. And it's not that I didn't enjoy it. It's not quite that. It's just that I didn't think it was the best of the best of that year. And again, I don't think I have the credentials to criticize the people who give out these prizes because I honestly don't know better than them. But it's just that my level of enjoyment wasn't quite the same. There's other books that have been given prizes that I have thoroughly enjoyed and I think they deserve it. Like Lincoln and the Bardo. I love that book. Mm -hmm. And I think it was the man booker for the year it was published. But for some others, again, it's not like I don't enjoy them. It's that I don't see the the hype to be so
0: priced. There's a lot to unpack here. Let's start with the question that everybody's going to write in and ask. What was the book in question?
1: Oh, Lord, I don't want to do that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Give us a hint. Everybody loves it. (laughs) No. Okay, but see, that leads us to the next point, which is when we see a lot of fuss being made about a book, when we see like on Instagram that everybody seems to love it, or when we hear a lot of positive reviews, or when we see that it's selling well, and we read it and just don't understand what the fuss is about, it can feel because we're keeping our opinion to ourselves, like it's just us. And it's never, it's never just you. And also I hear you deferring saying like, well, maybe the people choosing, maybe they know more about books than I do. But I do want to say you're a reader who knows how to walk and read at the same time. (laughs) I, I think your opinion about what you're reading can be trusted. Although I appreciate the humility like that comes from readers saying, I don't know, like I'm open to learning more. Let me hear about it. So I appreciate that humility. And at the same time, I'm inclined to trust your opinions about this reading experience and not think you just got it wrong.
1: Let me just clarify that it's not that I think it's a bad book. I don't think it is a bad book. I just think it wasn't the best that year.
0: Right. And from these awards, from many of these awards, you're expecting them to highlight the best books. You put a lot of expectations on a book when you give it an award. So go ahead.
1: Station 11? It could have been my expectations were too high because of the hype and because the premise is so good. The premise of that book, fantastic. It's like Shakespeare in a dystopian world, I'm in. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, I don't know. It didn't really grab me. I, I, I enjoy it. I think I... Gave it like a three stars in Goodreads, but it it wasn't a five-star review as I was expecting it to be. Like Lincoln in the Bardo for me was that. It was amazing. It was like, I've never read something like this. It is is great.
0: A joke we have at my house that we're saying all the time these days is low expectations are the key to happiness. Conversely, <laughs> when you have really high expectations about a book, it's easy to fall short. I love it when readers, whether they are people I'm going to talk to in my living room or guests I'm going to talk to you on the podcast, when you don't agree about a book, there's so much to talk about instead of a mutual love fest, which can be interesting, but maybe not as much so as when readers differ in their opinions. Let me say that something that I love about Station Eleven is her voice and her style, the way she draws connections between these disparate things.
1: To me, it's kind of like background noise. <laughs> <laughs> Explain yourself, because that doesn't
0: sound good. <laughs> so
1: it's really like indirect music. Does that make better sense? It's like the music that you hear in the background and you don't know you're hearing. It, and after a while, you realize you have been listening to that tune for a while and it catches you. That's the way I describe her tone, which is good. I don't have any problem with her tone. I think she's a, she has very a lot of merit as a writer. It's just that probably my expectations were too high for Station Eleven. I did enjoy The Glass Hotel. I keep coming back to her because I do like her tone.
0: That's interesting. But what I'm saying is I personally really am drawn to the way she tells stories. And the reason is because that's distinct from so many other writers. And anyone who does anything in a distinct way is going to appeal to some readers and not others. And it's fine to finish a book and say, you liked it. And yet I can see you looking around going like, oh my gosh, what am I missing that the National Book Award people loved. You're describing my same reaction. <laughs> it's okay for us to have different opinions about books. And it's also okay to acknowledge this book was incredibly well-written. And it's just not for me. Like, that's okay, too.
1: That's the way I feel. It, it has merit. I think it, it does have merit. I do recognize that.
0: But this brings us back to the larger question, which is, all these books are winning awards... We'd like to think that these books getting awards are the best of the best. So I'm not sure if the question on the table is, is that really true? Or a corollary question, but not the same question is, if these books are the best of the best, how can I then tell which of these books are right for me?
1: Uh, That's an interesting question. Sometimes I think it's, you have to focus on the prize or the award. I found that I am usually like better the Man Booker, for example, which is kind of Mm -hmm. Like new things that writers do in literature, or like new formats or, or new narrators, than I do with other types of awards that are more like literary in a, in a sense, like academic.
0: Yes, and what you're pointing out is there are so many different book awards. I read something the other day that said, because there are so many, there's something like 100 book awards for every thousand books published these days. Some of them are small, like, like I was asked to serve on a committee for a specific Southern Law School's book award. You know, every school can have their book award and that's how we end up with so many. But then they're the big ones that many readers have heard of. And Gretel, one of the reasons I'm so glad that you brought up this question is it's a question that we get at What Should I Read Next? and for my blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy, all the time. Like, what are some of the major awards? What do they mean? And how are they decided?
1: There's so many that sometimes you can feel that you're drawing on them. What I do is I just go to, like, niche awards. Like, the I think the Hugo is for science fiction. There's another one for horror. I don't remember the name now. But
0: <laughs> I sometimes just... <laughs> I don't know the award for horror books. Probably because if I saw a book had received that, I'd go running in the opposite direction. <laughs>
1: Uh, But I, I usually go like to niche awards that I probably know what to expect from the winner.
0: So you mentioned The Man Booker, which is awarded each year for the best novel written in the English language. It used to be only books published originally in the UK, but just in the past 10 years, I think it was 2014, the scope was widened to include any book originally published in English. It's true. The books they've chosen in recent years, you can see that they really are rewarding those who are being more experimental. Like you mentioned Lincoln and the Bardo. Um, Yeah. Wolf Hall won. The Remains of the Day is a, a Booker Prize winner. We've got the Pulitzer, which gives out a ton of various awards every year, including the Prize for Distinguished Fiction. Uh, Also, they give prizes for journalism and nonfiction and a whole slew of other categories. Those are for books by an American author. And they say that preference is given to works dealing with American life – And yet, like All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr won a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you, there's a prize that I turn to all the time. I don't know if this is going to be reflected in your reading taste, but when readers are coming to me for book recommendations, I often find myself pointing to the Alex Awards. I didn't know about that one. Oh, okay. Well, let me tell you about it. These are books that are written for adults, but have special appeal to young adults ages 12 to 18. So these are adult books that are great for teen readers. They've been giving them out for a little over 20 years now. For example, some of the winners for this year are Dominicana by Angie Cruz, The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead.
1: Oh, I love The Nickel Boys. I adored that book.
0: Okay. Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. So these books aren't specifically written for the teen market, but they're books that may really appeal to teens. When teens or adults are looking for books for those teens are like, I don't know, I'm not loving the YA section. I don't want to read nonfiction. What should I do? The Alex Awards are a great place to look. You mentioned some of the... Genre specific awards. And I'm so glad you said these. Like, I always love to see what's chosen for the Edgar Awards. The best works in mystery fiction, nonfiction, television, et cetera, is presented by the Mystery Writers of America. Um, some winners have been Before the Fall, Codename Verity, The Expats, uh, Columbine, in fact, won Best Fats Crime. And then you mentioned the Hugo and the Nebula that are given for science fiction and for fantasy. Yes, I love that, Jara. There are so many more. I mean, many readers are familiar with the Newberry, the Caldecott, the prince that's given for YA fiction. Are there any other ones that you really pay attention to? Um, I usually pay attention to the novel one, the, the Nobel prize. But again, it's
1: it's it's either hit or miss with the novel. I loved uh, Kazuo Ishiguro, The Remains of the Day. I think it won. Yes. I don't remember. Not because I don't want to disclose it, but I just don't remember which one was it that won the Nobel. And I was like, hmm. <laughs>
0: Okay, so I hear you saying that even though you feel like sometimes these awards don't steer you well in your reading life, you're still drawn to see what these committees are choosing. And it's putting me in mind of the fact that so many readers turn to the awards because there are so many books being published every year. And... These committees for the various prizes can, in a sense, really narrow down the potential titles that you may be reading. Is that something that appeals to you?
1: Yes, that is something that appeals to me. And also because many times they do assert. I've read many books that have been chosen that have been good. It's just that it's not all the time. It's not a 100% satisfaction guarantee. <laughs>
0: <laughs> do you feel like it should be?
1: I expect it to be. <laughs> But maybe that's a bad expectation on my side. Well,
0: this is interesting. And I'm saying this as a reader, not as an authority figure, right? But I think what these prizes really do is they show you what a group of people is looking for to fulfill the requirements of the award that they're seeking to bestow as readers We all value different things. We're looking for different things out of our reading experiences. We're looking to learn about different things and experience different emotions. And we enjoy different kinds of styles and tones and themes and subject matter. And that's all fine and good. But those committees aren't necessarily aligned with what we're looking for in our reading life. When they go choose who to bestow their prizes upon, they're looking for the books that speak to what's important to that committee. That's fine. I mean, of course, they have to have a lens through which they're looking to, you know, similarly cut through all the books published to find the ones that are best suited to their award. If as readers, we don't understand what they're looking for and what kind of work they're seeking to shine a spotlight on, then we're going to end up frustrated.
1: Yeah, they probably should release a memo with like, this is reason. <laughs> Like, for example, this year, I think it was the National Book Award. It was won by two books, the Testament by Margaret Atwood and uh, Girl, Woman, Other by Bernardine Evaristo, they both got a tie. I mean, it, that is one of the cases that, OK, I am cool with you choosing two books because I read both and I love Margaret Atwood. But The Testaments wasn't really, um, I didn't enjoy it as much.
0: I've read a lot of strong opinions about that decision. I've not read The Testaments.
1: I didn't enjoy it quite as much as I did The Handmaid's Tale.
0: Your voice says it was fine.
1: It was fine. It wasn't award worthy. worth
0: it. <laughs> yeah. And yet, have you read Girl, Woman, Other?
1: Yes, I did. And that one is really interesting. It's very different. I like books that are different. I, I wasn't expecting that. It was very creative. Very, very creative.
0: If it matters, the Testaments won the Booker. There you go. And that's so interesting because the chairman of the Booker campaign, it was, it was the Booker that the Testaments and Girl, Woman, Other shared, said, the rules firmly state you can only have one winner. But the judges were like, eh, we're doing two.
1: Maybe they should follow that lead and everybody should have to. At least you're going to know that you like one better than the other.
0: Obviously, you're interested in how literary awards affect you and your choices as a reader. Are you also interested in how they affect the broader literary landscape? The real reason I go to the
1: Literary Awards is because my to-be-read list is about 9,000 books long. And I need to not that down. <laughs> I go to them and I see which ones I won in the previous year so that I can just select one that is worth it and that has withhold with time. I wasn't really checking them for the impact they might have in the literary future. I wasn't that deep.
0: <laughs> These awards, you know, make some readers shake their fists and others roll their eyes and others <laughs> applaud. But all at the same time, they do have a real impact on... Sales and especially school curricula, but okay, let's let's talk about your nine thousand books that you just kind of <laughs> snuck in right there. That's a lot of books, Gretel.
1: I get trigger happy in Goodreads. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> it's so easy; you just have to click the want to read button, and then it just have you just have it in your list. So I just put everything in there. I just read the description, and since I told you I'm a book and everything appeals to me, so everything goes into the list. And now it's that pile is getting bigger and unmanageable.
0: So Gretel, when you're seeking to narrow it down, are you cross-referencing your 9,000 books on your Goodreads to be read list with various literary prizes? How are you doing this?
1: Well, sometimes I cross-reference with literary prizes. Sometimes I do that with the other pile of books. I have at home of books with list of books. I'm going to sound like a nerd, but I
0: have... (laughs) (laughs) We welcome that here.
1: Every time I see a book published about list of books, I buy it. So I have James Mustish, um, 1001 Books Before, to Read Before You Die. I think there was another book with the same title printed in the UK that I bought as well. And I have all Nancy Pearl's books of like Book Lost and Book Lost to Go and Book Crush. So I have all the list of books to be read. And basically, I just cross-reference with what the other literary prizes said. And if they pass that test, I'm like, oh, interesting. It's going into my want to be read list. I try to read as much as I can, but I don't think I'm going to make it to the end of my life and finish that list.
0: (laughs) Not even if you stopped adding to it today.
1: I think even if I die with a book in my hands, I'm still going to have another 10,000 to go.
0: So with 9,000 titles on your to-be-read list, how do you actually decide what to read next? I mean, when, when the time comes to choose another book?
1: Sometimes... One book will trigger my interest for another one. Like I used to get down the rabbit hole. So if, if for example, I, I read a retelling of Cinderella. So when I read Cinder, I, of course, finished the series. But then it, it I got interested in like other retellings and I discovered Wicked. And Maguire in general has awesome retellings. And then I went into that rabbit hole of retellings of fairy tales. And there, some of them are really creative.
0: I'm really nervous to add more books to your to to be read list, but it sounds like you welcome the additions if you're buying Nancy Pearl and Jim Mustick. So I'm going to try not to feel too guilty about it. I'm really excited to hear more about your specific titles. Are you ready to talk about them? Yes, I am. Readers, if you love What Should I Read Next, you're going to love being part of our Patreon community. That's where we share bonus episodes, including follow-ups with previous guests, interesting conversations that were cut for time reasons, and One Great Book Style episodes where I tell you all about recent reads that I adore. In addition to the extra audio, you get access to our super secret spreadsheet vault with the full list of all the books guests love and my three recommendations from every episode in an easy-to-search format. And on occasion, we get together live online for Ask Us Anything-style conversations and events like our 90-minute fall book preview and summer reading guide unboxing. Join for all these perks and to be part of the community behind what should I read next? Go to patreon.com slash what should I read next. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash what should I read next to become a member today. Patreon.com slash what should I read next. Okay, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you're reading now, and we'll talk about what you may enjoy reading next. How did you choose these, Gretel?
1: Honestly, I just wrote the first three that come to my mind when I was filling the entry form, because if I put too much thought into it, I would never submit the entry form, and then I would never (laughs) be talking to you. So I'm just like, put the three that first come to your mind, Gretel, and let it go. You're probably never going to be chosen anyways. (laughs) So
0: So don't overthink it. I like it. Gretel, what did you choose for your first book?
1: The first book was The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams.
0: That's a fun one.
1: Science fiction at its best. It's really hard to Talk about that book without spoiling it because it is so crazy. But then it, he has so much puns and play with words. There's some just there that make the reader go like, ha, <laughs> like a paranoid android or what is the solution to the question of the universe and life and everything is a number, like the answer to a third grade problem. We
0: were just talking about that book this week because with our fall book preview, there's so many books coming out this fall. It's not going to be good for your TBR, Gretel, but fall's always a big season. But then so many books were pushed back from spring and early summer to fall because of the coronavirus. Publishers thought we want to give these much anticipated titles their best shot at being successful and making it a reader's hands. So let's push them into the next season. There's a lot of books coming out.
1: I'm looking forward
0: to it oh, well, it's going to be 10,000 soon. And so for the fall book preview, we had 40 titles, which I thought was excessive, but not over the top. But then I realized I'd forgotten a book that I'd already read and loved coming this fall. And so I snuck it in. Then we had 41, which doesn't have quite the ring to it. You know, 41. You can make it 42. (laughs) Exactly. Because 42 is Douglas Adams' answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. So it's 42, and that's why. Thank you, Douglas Adams.
1: Oh, I love it. (laughs) Anyways, if if people haven't read it, just grab it and read it. It's so short. It's, It's condensed fun. And it would make you think about so many things while you're cracking up (laughs) That is just worth the trip.
0: Um, I've been thinking about reading it again, and now you're definitely pushing me over that edge.
1: It's it's a fast read. If anything, it won't take you too long.
0: But then you're going to want to read the rest of the series. Oh, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Gretel, what did you choose for your next book?
1: The next one was Something Wicked This Way Comes by Red Bradbury. I love Bradbury, and Something Wicked This Way Comes is probably my favorite one from him. I, I do like Fahrenheit 451, but Something Wicked This Way Comes is, is my favorite. There's a small town in America, and there's a carnival of horrors that comes to town, uh, probably like a week before Halloween or something. So it's very it's very eerie and, and very atmospheric. And in this midnight show that they put up, they promised all the attendees that they were going to get you know, their dreams are going to come true and they're going to be young forever. And everybody, of course, is drawn to it. And it's kind of like a a cautionary tale of like, be careful what you wish for, in a sense, because it soon goes very, very bad, uh, this carnival. And people start to realize that their nightmares are coming true. But basically what I took away from the book is that it doesn't matter how terrible reality is. If you can laugh about it, you can just shatter the hole of mirrors and you can just displace the smoke and it's just laugh about your issues or your problems and the terror is going to go away. And that's what I, what I took from it. And I love that. And I try to remember that every single day because it doesn't matter how bad it gets. If you can laugh about it, the output is going to be good.
0: Okay. And your first book is really seriously funny. I'm thinking this is not a coincidence. Gretel, what did you choose for your third favorite?
1: I haven't been able to talk about this book with many people because for some reason it's not that popular. Uh, it's called The Illusion of Separateness by Simon Van Bui. This writer, I found him through this book. And after that, I wanted to read everything he wrote because his prose is so great. It, I, I don't want to say beautiful or musical because people think that I am describing something boring, but it is very moving. Something else I, I love about books, it's when the ending just grabs me by surprise and it ties everything I've been reading together. So this book is about very, like, different stories from six different characters. And at the end, everything just comes unraveled by... Uh, so everything makes sense when you get to the final chapter. And, it, and it, you get to the final chapter so moved and so in love with the way he writes that I immediately grab every other book he wrote. And, and I think I read, like, three more And all of them are in the same appealing voice and rhythm in his prose.
0: Oh, that sounds really interesting. Now, Gretel, tell me about another book that wasn't right for you.
1: Oh, here we go. And I hate to talk about books I don't like because I know that people do work hard for writing a book and I myself cannot write a sentence. So it feels pretty petty talking about books that I didn't enjoy. And I do think this might have been a book that wasn't for me at the moment. And the book mm-hmm. is The Chimes by Anna Smale. I think it was shortlisted also for an award, and that's probably how it ended up in my in my to-be-read. When I read the premise of the book, I was really excited because it's a dystopian London. People cannot form memories, and they cannot communicate with words. So that was incredible. I'm like, how can humans cope? But then there's this uh, musical instrument that erases people's memories, and then people are forced to communicate through music and through sound. I was sold. I, I heard that premise and I was immediately sold. But then, when I started reading the book, it w- didn't quite grab me. The tone was a little bit soporific and I found myself falling asleep every time. Until this day, that's the only book I haven't been able to finish.
0: <laughs> As we've said, timing is everything. Yeah. Gretel, what are you reading right now?
1: Right now, I finished a book called uh, The Wonder Boy at the, of Whistle Stop by Fanny Flag. It's kind of like uh-huh. a sequel to Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe.
0: I'm thinking about reading this. Yeah, I'm very interested. How did that go? So this I got through NetGalley.
1: I don't think it's out yet. I think it comes uh-huh. out in the fall. That was incredibly good. It felt like a hot from grandpa because I, I got to meet <laughs> again, everybody that I had met at uh, Fried Green Tomatoes. It was good to see how they end up. And it was like a visit to hometown and meeting old friends. It was really, it was really moving. I I really enjoyed it. And the other book that I finished recently, I think you might like because it's called The 99% Invisible City.
0: That sounds like me.
1: It's a nonfiction book. It's it's basically about like city planning, how cities get the height of their buildings or sidewalks and streetlights and and things like that. And I, I know that you're into city planning, so you might enjoy that.
0: Uh, yes, I am, and yes, I might.
1: There is another galley, so it might come up in the in the fall.
0: Ooh, I need to get my hands on that then. Gretel, you love *The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy* by Douglas Adams, *Something Wicked This Way Comes* by Ray Bradbury, and *The Illusion of Separateness* by Simon Van Bui. Not for you is *The Chimes* by Anna Smale. And recently you've read The Wonder Boy of Whistle Stop by Fanny Flagg and The 99% Invisible City by Roman Mars and Kurt Kohlstedt. Gretel, what do you want more of in your reading life?
1: I do read a lot of fiction and sometimes I want a nonfiction book to pair well with the fiction I'm reading. That's usually hard to find because I don't know how to find too many nonfictions that would pair up well with a fiction book. Whenever I do read a nonfiction book, it's fascinating to me. Like I get so into it and I really enjoy it. So probably I should do more of that.
0: Oh, there are a lot of directions we could go here. I'm ready to explore. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay, so here's what I'm keeping in mind, that you have 9,000 books (laughs) on your to-be-read list, and I'm not eager to add to it unless... I think that you'll find it worth it to add one more title to the list. I'm definitely keeping literary awards in mind. I'm paying attention to books that have won awards in part because I think they're likely to be on your list. And finally, you'd really love to find a nonfiction title that pairs well with what you're currently reading. How does that sound so far?
1: Sounds good. And I promise you, your suggestion is going to be on the top of the pile.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No pressure or anything. I'm definitely noticing... You didn't choose exclusively science fiction for your favorites, but two out of three were.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Ooh, something else I'm noticing, Gretel, is that your favorites are not recent releases. So the illusion of separateness was in the last 10 years, but not the last one or two. And Douglas Adams and Ray Bradbury, those books are decades old. So tried and true definitely seems like a way to go. Tried and true meaning how about books that people are still reading, many, many years after their release.
1: Absolutely. I usually go with the older books, like paperback releases are usually my go-to. I don't have that feeling of going for the new shiny book. I just let it rest and simmer and see if it gets good tasting and then I'll go and grab it.
0: (laughs) I like the way you describe that. First up, I'm wondering about a book that was published maybe five years ago. It's been called an homage to Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles and 334 by Thomas Dish. It's by Cuba's greatest living science fiction writer. How does this sound to you?
1: Oh, my God. Why I don't know about this?
0: Okay. Well, that sounds like a good start. So this book is an award winner as well, but it won an award that is not on the radar of many book lovers who are more familiar with the big ones like the Pulitzer and the Nobel and the Man Booker. The author here is Yas. That's the pen name for the Cuban sci-fi writer, Jose Miguel Sanchez Gomez. Is this an author you're familiar with? No, I don't know why I don't know him. Okay. The book award here is the Prix Julia Verlanger. This is reminding me of my episode with Florence Brovart. Uh, that's 223. Five stars for negative book reviews. She's a French reader, and we talked about French books, and oh, I pronounced that French with a Kentucky accent badly. Okay, enough about that. Let's talk about Yas. But the, the award that Yas won was the pre-Yulia Verlanger Award. It's run by the, we're just going to call it the French Foundation instead of needing to say the Fondation okay. de France. Okay, <laughs> but it's awarded annually to a science fiction work of adventure or fantasy. And his book, A Planet for Rent, won it. This book has been out for about five years. What I like about this for you is it's science fiction it's inventive. It might be going it a little far to call it experimental, but it's more like a series of vignettes. And it's got a really interesting premise. And that is that things have just gone horribly on earth. Earth is the planet for rent. And on the opening page, here's what it says. It's almost like you're reading like an advertisement or like you can picture somebody like standing on the sidewalk, like calling out, Hey, who's interested in what I have for sale. And I'm just going to read it to you for rent one planet that's lost its way in the race for development, that showed up at the stadium after all the medals had been handed out. That's kind of a fun tie-in toward our literary prizes, but okay, back to it. When all that was left was the consolation prize of survival. For Rent, one planet that learned to play the economics game according to one set of rules, but discovered once it started playing that the rules had been changed. Earth is trashed, Finally collapsing under its own economic and environmental problems. But we are rescued by alien colonizers who decide to rebrand it as a tourist destination. And so all the poor citizens of Earth are living these uh, meager unhappy existences, whether that's working for the new police by the aliens who have come to colonize them, Um, they're working as black marketers, they're dealing drugs, they're working as social workers, which is what they call prostitutes, or they're desperately trying to escape. Something else I like about this for you is that Yas is explicitly writing about his country of Cuba.
1: I was going to say that just it means that they put the island the, or the history of the island in a science fiction setting, and I am drooling right here.
0: Yeah, he's writing about the Cuba he knows from the '90s, and he says that in this specific book, he's often writing about Cuba. So what Yas says he loves about science fiction and writing it, writing in this genre, is you can comment on. Contemporary events without coming at it directly, even though you're very much explicitly and deliberately telling stories about our present day situation. He calls sci-fi a mirror that we place in the future to understand our present better, saying that the reflection is better than if we tried to look at our present directly here's a quote from him. He says, when we write stories about 24th century characters facing problems that currently appear fantastical, these characters are often really our contemporaries fighting everyday dilemmas in disguise. And he also says like, hey, hey, like I'm writing in Cuba and have been for years. And like, could I comment on current politics? No. But can I write sci-fi that comments on current politics? Absolutely. Yes. Oh,
1: my God. I wish you could see my face. I am I wish I could smiling too. from ear to ear and my jaw is in the floor. Like both things at the same time.
0: <laughs> I'm Not sad about that. That was A Planet for Rent by Yas, the pen name for Jose Miguel Sanchez Gomez. If you like that, there's more where that came from.
1: Oh, I can't wait. That's a great start, Anne.
0: I'm wondering if we go back in time, if we might find a book that's already on your list, or maybe you've already read it. I'm wondering about the sci-fi classic, The Lathe of Heaven by Ursula K. Le Guin. Is this one you've read?
1: I love Ursula K. Le Guin. I, I think the only thing I've read from her is The Left Hand of Darkness.
0: Ooh, okay.
1: So I am I am on board. And I actually have the complete works
0: of her in my bookshelf. Okay, so I don't feel bad about recommending this one then. I guess, okay. I mean, I hear you saying you want the book recommendations, and yet I keep thinking about how that TBR might crush you. <laughs> it's okay, I'm strong. (laughs) (laughs) You built those muscles over time. (laughs) This is a 1971 novel. It's short. It's less than 200 pages. You could read this. Well, I don't know how many buildings you'd have to walk between, but I don't think it would take you long. And this one did receive nominations for the 1972 Hugo and the 1971 Nebula Award, two awards we said that you pay attention to because of the genres they cover. And it also won the Locus Award for Best Novel in 1972. So do you know anything about this book, if you're familiar with Lewin? No, not at all. Okay. I haven't read enough by her. I'm reading more sci-fi on purpose this year. I need to read more Ursula K. Le because she is a legend. And she is talented. So talented. And has really changed the face of the genre and also mm-hmm. prolific. So her works could keep readers busy for a good long time. So this book is about a man whose dreams change reality. When he dreams things, they happen. And he's therefore justly afraid of having those dreams. And because of these dreams, he gets sent to a psychiatrist who realizes the power this man has and how he could maybe, instead of helping him the way he seeks, he could work with him or work against him maybe to harness how reality is being changed. And to do this, he brings in a lawyer who he hopes will help him reclaim his agency, even as the world is changing around them. And the things that Le Guin does with the lawyer are absolutely fascinating. But the reason I bring up those three characters is the book is told from the points of view of these three people who are looking at the same situation, but have varied, I mean, their interests are competing here. Of these three characters, you know, there's the poor man who dreams, the psychiatrist who sees the potential, but then the attorney is so fascinating because you know Le Guin writes about race and gender and society and culture in incredibly prescient ways. The lawyer is a Black civil rights lawyer. In the story, there's this. Wow, how do I describe this, Gretel? I know I know Le
1: Guin is is hard to describe.
0: I'm really finding that.
1: Because even with the left hand of darkness, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to say anything that would spoil it. So it's okay, I am sold already. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't want to give anything away. But the way Le Guin plays with race and identity in this novel that she wrote that was published in 1971 is absolutely fascinating. 176 pages feels like a small investment of time, but a huge potential payoff in reading, enjoyment, and mind-blowingness. That's totally a word, right? Oh, I am on board. What's the name again? That is The Lathe of Heaven by Ursula K. Le Guin.
1: I am so on board.
0: All right, book three, let's go nonfiction. Let's go. Stop me if you've read this, but Ray Bradbury wrote, again, a short, brilliant little book called Zen and the Art of Writing. Have you read this? No. Okay, we're camping out in the 70s. This came out in 1973 for the first time. I first encountered this in a writing class maybe 10 years ago. And this is Bradbury peeling back the curtains. Do you peel back curtains? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and, and and pull up floors and bring down roofs.
0: <laughs> well, he does all of that talking about his process. And you said that you really like humor in books. I wouldn't say that funny is like the guiding emotion here, but- he is pumped up to talk about his work. Like he says, the first thing a writer should be is excited. He should be a thing of fevers and enthusiasm and he needs vigors or what is he doing writing anyway? But what emerges is the man behind the fantastical stories that he somehow comes up with. I mean, how does he come up with his premises? I have no idea, but he talks about it here and it's very clear that a Part of his process is putting his butt in the chair and working really hard all the time. And the thing that has really stuck with me that continues to blow me away, that I think about all the time, is his process for writing short stories back when he was getting his beginning. Now, we read these stories like dandelion wine or all summer in a day, and we think, oh my goodness, he must have been mulling that over for years, but probably not. He probably sat down on Monday, knew he was going to ship something off to a magazine Friday afternoon, so we better come up with a good idea. And he tells you how day by day throughout the week, he moves the story from initial idea, to first draft, to polishing it, to putting in the mail Friday afternoon, and it blew my mind. We're talking about mind-blowingness. I don't think you have to be a writer at all, just a lover of the written word to appreciate this, but the subtitle here is Essays on Creativity and the way he talks about his own process, but also his general thoughts about how creative people should work, the purpose of doing such work. He also writes poetry. There's There are poems in this book, and that's fun, too. You said that you like the idea of nonfiction works that may augment and enhance your fictional reading experience. And I think I, you tell me, how does this sound?
1: That sounds great. And I love Bradbury. I think he wrote Fahrenheit 451 in nine days, if I'm not incorrect.
0: I did not know that, but I believe it.
1: It it started as a short story, The Fireman, I think it was called. And then he wrote it in nine days. And I think he edited and that's what Fahrenheit 451 is today.
0: Well, he does talk about the writing of Fahrenheit 451. So he probably said that. It's a serious book. I mean, it's called Zen and the Art of Writing. He gets really philosophical, but also his philosophy is funny.
1: But it's Bradbury. Like some of the
0: essays are called um, The Care and Feeding of the Muse, but also (laughs) drunk and in charge of a bicycle. Oh, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that is Zen and the Art of Writing by Ray Bradbury. All right, Gretel. So today we talked about A Planet for Rent by Yoss. The Lathe of Heaven by Ursula K. Le Guin, and Zen in the Art of Writing by Ray Bradbury. Now, I think I have a hunch based on what you said about the current state of your bookshelves and what is on them. But of these three books, what do you think you may enjoy reading next?
1: If I could, I could, if I could read the three of them at the same time, I would because they all sound great. But I think I'm going to start with A Planet for Rent.
0: Well, I can't wait to hear what you think. Also, I'm loving the image right now of you juggling three books, walking down the sidewalk between (laughs) buildings at work. Gretel, this has been a joy. Thanks so much for talking books with me today.
1: Thank you, and you have been a delight.
0: Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Gretel, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 251, and it's where you will find the full list of titles we talked about today. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Anne Vogel. That is Anne with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. Find me there at Anne Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the What Should I Read Next news and happenings. If you're not on the list, go to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter to sign up for our free weekly delivery. If you enjoy this podcast, we'd love your support. Please share it with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or grab a copy of my book I'd Rather Be Reading for yourself or a friend. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Bekaczek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.